Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Another packed house. Can I encourage you to do something real quick? Just... Um, we, uh, it's, it's crowded in here, right? Okay. But the question is, can we fit more people in here? Yes. We will find a way. So please do not, uh, do not be discouraged. All right? God has always provided for us, and he'll make a way. And as the visitors show up, you know, God is adding to his church daily such as should be saved. People are getting saved. I heard testimonies even just over the last week of people who came to Christ. And they need a place. And, uh, and we're here for them uh, so that they can, they can grow in their faith. And so uh, we need to make room. We need to make room. We'll make room. And if that means our leaders sit back here, okay, and get the very unfortunate view, <laughs> right, um, then that's what we'll do. And we'll make that sacrifice so that people can hear the word. We're going to make room, right? I am uh, I'm excited about today's message. Um, the name of today's message is uh, Our Acts of Love. Our Acts of Love. We've been in the book of Acts for a really a long time now and studying uh, uh, the book of Acts and looking at the stories and learning from these, these, these pioneer missionaries. And we've been watching their acts uh, on display. But today we're going to be talking specifically about the, the acts of love that we witness uh, in the body of Christ in, uh, in our story, in our narrative. You know, many of us, uh, we grew up in varying levels of dysfunction, family dysfunction. Yeah? I mean, some of you, uh, you know, I'd probably say, uh, some of you probably came up really well, loving parents, Christian home maybe, and, uh, and that was awesome. You know, I think about, whenever I think about, uh, like, the, the, the great Christian home, I always think about the best, you know, like, does everybody else think about that? Like, like, what would it be like to grow up in a, in a home where everybody was like singing songs every day to the Lord, and, <laughs> right? And like the be- best family, it just seems like the best family, right? Um, but I mean, every family has some level of dysfunction. There's no perfect family. And uh, what the heck? Hi, Brooke. It's good to see you. Sorry. What are you doing here? (laughs) Okay, we'll talk later. (laughs) But everybody grew up in varying levels of dysfunction, right? And, uh, you know, uh, even the the best kinds of homes have their problems. And and some of us grew up in and really dysfunctional situations where there was like lots of fighting all the time maybe in your house, lots of yelling. That was like normative, right? Just yelling in the house. That was going on. And, and uh, rebellion, you know, the, the, you know, the brothers and sisters are rebelling against the parents. They're sneaking out at night or like maybe there's no curfew, no structure. And uh, people just find their way to bad behavior, right? And, and that happens. And, and what happens Unless something changes, what happens is in time, those relationships actually, even if the people in that home love each other, 
Even if they care for one another, the relationships over time will break because they can't sustain constant hostility and dysfunction. They just can't. And so even the most loving people, if they don't know how to function in their relationship together, end up there, there ends up being uh, uh, severs uh, uh, in, the, in the relationship and things begin to break down. And so how someone acts out their love is actually very important. How your love for others manifests itself can either be healthy or unhealthy. And for some of us, how we express our love for our church family can also be dysfunctional. A lot of us are bringing the dysfunction from our family life and how we were brought up. And because it's all we know, we're bringing it into the, the body of Christ. Now the, now, the beautiful thing about that, and the thing that I've learned over time, is that the church has actually taught me how to function as a family. What I didn't know, I, I came to know. I came to learn it by practicing family with, with my church and with the people that I love here. And, and a lot of the dysfunction and the baggage that I brought to the table over, the to- over time, people modeled a better way for me, a more Christ-like way. And I was able to put down that baggage and really change the habits and the actions that I had in my life. And I think that that's, that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing as family. Now, throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the passion of pioneer ministry. Right? We've seen Paul and the boys out doing work and doing cool stuff, and trusting in the Lord, and facing persecution, and that's been real motivating. That's been very motivating for us, and it's been amazing and an incredible example. But it's one thing to live the life of a pioneer missionary, which all of us are learning how to do, I believe. It's one thing to live the life of a pioneer missionary, but it's a whole other thing to live the life of a passionate member of the body of Christ. That's another thing. And in the chapter that we're about to look at, we're going to get a look at how Paul loves the church. And from his testimony, I hope that we can learn how we ought to love one another as the family of God. Okay, are we all prepared to look at that today? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we do want to know you more. And we recognize that whether we're out on the street meeting people and sharing the gospel, whether we're in our classroom or or at our our place of work, and we're sharing faith, and we're doing the pioneering work, or whether we're in the context of our church family, and we're functioning as members, passionate members of the body of Christ, we need you to do that rightly. There's no good thing in our flesh, and if it's left to our own devices, uh, it will stray. It will wander. It will find itself far from you. It will be functioning in a way that, that may even look religious, but ultimately manifest no power, no peace, no authority. And so, Lord, we need your way. And so, Lord, please give us the ensample that we need today from your word that we might learn to love each other rightly, that we might be able to sacrifice for each other rightly, that we might give to one another in a way that is appropriate. Teach us. Show us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read. And the uproar, and after the uproar was ceased, after the uproar was ceased, and if you weren't with us, you might not know this part of the story, okay? There was an uproar in the last chapter, right? There was a bunch of Ephesians who were uh, upset and disappointed because the gospel was beginning to infringe on their economic and entrepreneurial activities, right? There was this group of craftsmen who had devoted their lives to creating uh, these, these worship trinkets, 
uh, idolatrous objects that were devoted to the goddess uh, Diana. And, and Ephesus was a city that was devoted to worshiping this goddess Diana. We talked about this last week. And, and when they discovered that, that the gospel was beginning to affect their bottom line, they got real upset and they, they provoked a riot in Ephesus. And a large group, uh, estimated in the thousands, gathered together and poured into the amphitheater and began to protest and riot. Uh, they wanted blood, okay? And they yelled for upwards of, of two hours, just yelling. And, and we talked about how there was just confusion and chaos. Nobody knew what they were upset about. Like after a while, uh, everybody had their own thing that they were angry about, and the, and the voice became confused. And, and in that time, Paul kind of went into hiding. You know, the, the, you know, his friends were like, hey, chill, stay back on this one. Uh, you don't want to just, you know be a bull in a china shop. We can all imagine what Paul would have been like if he would have had an opportunity to stand before that crowd. But they held him back, and they waited for the crowd to die down. And in God's providence, the crowd did die down. And now we find ourselves preparing to see Paul leave Ephesus. So Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. So Paul is leaving Ephesus. Now, if we remember from Acts chapter 19, he had said that he wanted to do this before. If you look at Acts chapter 19, verse 21, and and these things were ended, uh, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. So he had a plan. He wanted to go to Macedonia and then through Achaia and then go to Jerusalem saying, I, uh, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So the end goal is to get to Rome. And we'll talk about that later. So he sent, unto Mac- uh, he sent uh, into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So it was Paul's agenda all along to get to Rome. And so before the uproar, he actually sent Timotheus, Timothy, and Erastus ahead of him into Macedonia to prepare the way, figure out living arrangements, figure out what the best path to get to to Jerusalem, and then to Rome would be to do some planning. So he sent some scouts ahead of him to prepare the way. And uh, and so the goal eventually is to go through Macedonia and Syria, Jerusalem, to to spend Pentecost there, and then to go to Rome. But before he could, could go, he takes the time to grab hold of his friends in Ephesus and express his love, okay? And so we see here, what does it say? It says that he embraced them, the, the, the believers that he had invested in, so much time and so much energy, all right? We talked about, they spent more time in Ephesus than just about anywhere else. Maybe Corinth was the only other place that they spent this much time, the missionaries spent this much time devoted to discipling and, and loving the people. And so Paul had a huge investment there. And as he leaves, it says that he em- embraced them. So Paul was a hugger. Paul was a hugger. Now, many of you know my middle child, uh, Clementine, right? Now, Clementine has a strong personality, and she's always got her own agenda in mind. And when she was real little, even I noticed almost from the very beginning that we couldn't keep her still. You know, Shepard's a real cuddler. Our oldest was a cuddler. And he, he's very sensitive, and he loved mommy and daddy time hanging out. But Clementine had her own way, and she was always, she was always avoiding hugging. So we've got, this, we've got this book called The Hug Machine. And uh, I love the illustrations in it. So as an artist, I, you know, I'm, I mean, look at this. This is the hug machine. He's working out, preparing. 
his biceps for the, the large amount of hugging that he will be doing, right? And, uh, and so he, tra he, he, he travels around, and there's no one he doesn't know. Um, he, he's hugging everyone. There was, you know, here we, there was an asterisk that we had to provide for Clementine. You don't get to just hug everybody, actually. But we read this book, I mean, all the time. We've read, probably read this book a couple hundred times. And in time, Clementine has become very much a hugger. Now, I don't attribute that to just this. We've also modeled love and affection in our home. And, and over time, she's learned to be a pretty serious cuddler. But, but there's the hug machine. And I believe that every home should, should own uh, a copy of the hug machine. Now, we need to be... I believe that we need to be hug machines in the church. Why? Why? Because outside of the church, love is expressed in, in very dysfunctional ways. Uh, love is, is often, as the world models it, love is often cold and opportunistic, isn't it? So, so you kind of get what you want from another person, and then the relationship grows it grows cold. It has a tendency to do that. And, and if it's not like that, then it's, then it's, then it's probably an over-sexualized version of love. When we hear the word talked about in, in society, in general com communication, conversation, when someone says love, well, what they usually mean is romantic love. And what they usually mean by that is sexual love. And we live in a very over-sexualized world. And when people say love, they either mean some sort of opportunistic relationship that they have with their friends or a romantic partner where they kind of get what they want out of that relationship or it's, it's over-sexualized and when they think about love, they're thinking about sex. And, and that's kind of the world that we live in. And a lot of times I see, like, you know, I, I used to be a high school teacher and I'd see these, these couples dating each other and really the only thing that the relationship had, the thing that was foundational to it, was this kind of sexual agreement that they had. They didn't actually know how to love one another. And I think that's indicative of most of the relationships, whether adult or teenager, that people run into. It's just maybe, you know, older versions of that exact same relationship. And, and in the church, it ought to be different. See, the world doesn't know how to model affection and care because it's selfish. But in the church, we have an opportunity to show affection in a way that is, in, that is sincere and has pure motives. And so that leads us to key point number one. Our love, as the church, will be displayed by the purity of our affection one toward another. Our love will be displayed as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as the symbol of God's love, if in our relationship, our affectionate relationship, is purity, pure motives, if we're going to display care for one another physically, the proper, proper motive is important. It's important. Listen to what Paul has to say about our love toward one another and how it should be lived out. Romans 12.9 says, let love be without dissimulation. Now, this word dissimulation means dishonor. Let our love, one toward another, be without dishonor. You know, we could dishonor and pervert the relationship that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We see that all the time. 
when the church does wrong, when the church is hypocritical, when the church is everything that it ought not be, that there's perversion in, in the relationship, in the affections that we have toward each other. And we ought to love one another without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity. And then, you know, we know that charity is that, that kind of love that's a giving love. Out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. Now, not to mention that, not to mention that and the motives, but, but Paul talks about five times in the New Testament in his letters that we ought to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? Now, what I want to talk to you about here is that there is a relationship between the way we engage each other physically and our motives and whether or not our heart beats with the heart of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? There's a relationship here. There's a paradox that we ought to understand. We ought to, we ought to, to consider. So what about PDA? What, right? what about public displays of affection? Much of, uh, uh, again, back to the high school, much of my time spent in the hallways at Lee Summit West High School was telling, telling young people to keep their freaking hands off each other. Okay? But PDA, PDA, what about it? What about this affection? What's Paul talking about? And, and are there boundaries to the physical affection that we should have one for another? And of course there are. There are boundaries. See, PDA is cultural. PDA, the way that people display their affection physically, is a cultural thing. It should be, it should be both spiritual, but it should also be cultural and, and should be appropriate spiritually and it should be appropriate culturally. Our job isn't to make people feel uncomfortable. Now, I think we've learned a lot about this during the COVID time, right? Like with COVID, we've learned what is and isn't appropriate physically because of the, way, because of the cultural uh, stigma surrounding engaging one another. And so there's, you know, six feet of distance and all these things. And, and uh, you know, I mean, look around. I mean, we got over that pretty quick, didn't we? Okay? Here at Midtown Baptist Temple, we are, we are uh, you know, we're affectionate, we, and, we ha- and we recognize that there's a value in physical affection, and it was very difficult, for me anyway, I don't know about others of you, in the, in the early days of COVID, not being able, you know, people showed up to church, and everybody's like, <laughs> you know, and it was weird, it was awkward, because we all wanted to embrace and, and, and remind each other that as brothers and sisters, we care for one another, and, um, you know, that's a cultural thing, because in some cultures, uh, in places like Spain or parts of France, they will actually greet one another with a kiss. That's a cultural thing to do. And obviously, Paul would recommend that uh, in the time period in which he lived and the people to which he ministered to. Now, for us, that, that would be like the boundary. In Kansas City, Missouri, uh, we don't, you know, Midwest folks... Uh, and I think, here's the crazy thing, is if we drive two hours south into a rural community, hugging is a lot different. Like, it's different in other places. Living Faith Fellowship will come here for a conference, and other churches will be here, and they'll be like, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Good to see you, too. And it's different for them. They, they, they show their affection different because there's cultural, there's different boundaries in different cultures, right? And that's totally fine. But here's the key. Here's the point. Is that brotherly and sisterly love ought to be expressed. It ought to be expressed. 
And it ought to be sincere. It ought to be sincere. Which means if there, if there are any creepy dudes in here today, okay? You're, now, you're not going to acknowledge, I'll say creepy dude. You're not going to acknowledge that you're the creepy dude. You're the guy, okay? But, if, but what I, I want to I plead with you for a moment. That the way that you engage your brothers and sisters in Christ is absolutely important and it ought to be appropriate. It ought to be appropriate physically. It ought to be appropriate spiritually. It ought to be appropriate uh, emotionally. And it ought to be appropriate culturally. And if someone is resistant, even because of COVID, if there's someone in this room that's like, nah, I'm good, fist bump, okay? We ought to respect that. We ought to respect that because it ought to be appropriate. Because what love says is that I'm going to show my affection physically by being appropriate with you and preferring you over myself. And that's how we ought to engage each other. John chapter 13, verse 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And so what that means is that we ought to display our love. We ought to be, we ought to be huggers. We ought to, to show people that we love one another. And one of the things that I love the most about being at Midtown Baptist Temple is that, is that people come to our church, and one of the things that they say that's common to hear is they say that they're taken back or surprised by how much we show each other love. Like if, you know, they might come to Kaya and they might be like, the preaching was okay, but man, what was really cool was how much you guys love each other. That's the thing that sticks with people. And I think that's a really powerful testimony, and we ought not waste it. We ought not waste it. And this is, this is again, this is my plea to you. Never lose your affection for each other. Steward your affection well. We are brothers and sisters. And that should mean something in the way that we engage each other. We ought to treat each other with love. And we ought to be willing to display it. Amen? Amen. So that's the first thing. Our embrace is important in terms of showing our love, the acts of love. Now what about other acts of love that we see from Paul here? Verse 2. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months. Okay, so he came over into to Greece. And it says, And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, so he was about to head over to Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. So he ends up going to Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia was Sopater of Berea, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. So Troas was a Greek city. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas, which is, again, it's Grecian, in five days, where we abode seven days. Okay, now, you, you can't see this on the, on the surface of the narrative, but as we compare Scripture with Scripture... We recognize that this little trip that he took, that Paul trick, uh, took from, from place to place uh, over these few days, these five to seven days that he was traveling, were very, very important. And if you remember back to Acts chapter 11, verse 29 through 30, Paul and Barnabas had taken up a love offering for Jerusalem. Remember that? Remember that? There was a bunch of believers that, that decided in Antioch that they wanted to give. They wanted to gather money and they wanted to give it to Jerusalem because they recognized that Jerusalem was going through a serious famine and that they had need, 
All right, so some of you might remember that part of the story. And they, they'd been experiencing a very serious drought, and there was believers there that were going hungry. But here again, in Acts chapter 20, we find Paul preparing to give another gift to the church in Jerusalem. So in Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, which he actually wrote during the three months that he spent here in Greece, because he ends up traveling to Corinth, and he writes the letter, if you remember, he writes the letter to Rome from Corinth. And he spends three months here. And he, he writes this letter, and he writes in chapter 15, verse 25 of Romans, But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So apparently he left Ephesus during his time in Macedonia. The Christians there were concerned about the well-being of their, the fellow believers in Jerusalem, and so they gathered up this offering and it's an example for us of the power of giving. The power of giving. The people have not forgotten the needs that exist in Jerusalem. Listen to me. These are people who've never met one another. You understand? They've never met one another. They've, they, they've never been exposed to the church in Jerusalem. They've just simply heard that there are saints there and the saints are suffering. The brethren is suffering. And so we ought to do something about that. And so they gathered together their money and they gave it as a, a gift. And this is a true act of love. Key point number, true, number two. Our love will be displayed in the sacrifice of our assets or possessions. Our love will be displayed by the sacrifice of our assets or our possessions. And I, I want to say this. I, I believe that so many people in the church today have lost touch with this conviction. They've lost touch with this. We know, that there's, we know that there's virtue in saving, right? The Bible teaches that we ought to save money for, for, for situations that are emergent, right? Something bad happens. Something bad happens to my family. The Bible teaches principally over and over again, actually pretty explicitly at times, that I ought to save money and keep money back because there's going to be a time where I have an emergency in my family and I need to be able to provide for them because I have a ministry to my family the same way I minister to the church. And the Bible teaches us beyond that that we ought to, to invest, that we ought to, to put money into investments that we might be able to have money for future generations, that we might be able to pass something along so that our family is provided for, that there's something virtuous about that. But I do believe that in America in 2021 that Christians are so focused on these principles and they've been so ingrained into the culture that a lot of times what we find is Christians who live by these principles so closely that they hoard money, they put away money, and they put away wealth in such a way that would hinder them in their heart and in their mind to actually give in sacrifice for those that are actually in need. And I think we really do need to be in touch with this idea that, that our money is not our own. And that there are reasons for us to give sacrificially above and beyond the tithe in situations where there are need. Maybe a brother and sister who's, who's got a heart for the ministry is wanting to go see the mission field and they don't have the funds to do it. Well, we ought to, as, uh, as believers, not, not to support some sort of habit of dependence, dependence on the church, but we ought to be able to step up and say, you know what, we want to help you get there. You know, I, you know there, at times there were, in my Bible study, 
um, over the years, there were times where needs popped up, financial needs popped up in the context of our Bible study. And I didn't tell the church about it. I didn't look to the benevolence fund to get that thing figured out. No, me and the Bible study, we coughed up the funds to make sure that that family had Christmas this year. We did that. And that's not to pat us on the back. It's just reasonable. Right? This is what reasonable Christians do, is they recognize that sometimes people are in need. And we ought to be ready and willing, particularly for the brethren, particularly for the body of Christ, to make sacrifices appropriate to meet those needs. Not to, te- not to teach them dependence, because sometimes a person in the body of Christ can grow overly dependent on the church and not take responsibility for themselves. And so we have to trust the Holy Spirit in this work. Right? We've got to be wise. But at the same time, we ought to be sacrificial. Nothing we have belongs to us. And we ought to be willing to sacrifice it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, lay, no, uh, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, there's an investment that we can make that looks only like loss for us. I mean, on paper, it only looks like a loss for us in terms of what is in our pocket and what we give away. It feels like loss financially. But produces spiritual wealth in heavenly places that we cannot see and we will only reap the benefits of on the other side. And we ought to understand that we don't give because we, ought to, we want to feel good about ourselves or whatever. Our motives, again, listen to me, our, our motives ought to be pure. Our affections ought to be pure. The key is acknowledging that your heart sits at the, at the center of the giving issue. When and how you give. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. In other words, it's a conviction issue. It's a matter of the heart. I can't tell Marshall what he should and shouldn't give. That's not my responsibility. The Word of God teaches him about the tithe, and it's his heart that teaches him whether or not he should give sacrificially. It's not my responsibility to badger him or beat him over the head. It's a matter of the heart. He gives as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And so God is growing all of us up into this act of giving through our heart by maturing us in our walk with Christ. He's teaching all of us what it means to give. And just like our love, our outward affection, our embrace shows people how we, how we care for each other and how important Christ is to us, so does the giving of our finances. And when someone has need... We prove our love for Christ and for others by our willingness to give. Make sense? Okay, so we've got embrace, physical affection that we show each other. We've got our giving, right? What we give financially in order to support one another as the family of Christ. But third, we also need to give our time. Verse 7, our time. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Okay, so pause for a second. The early church gathered, and they gathered often. Okay, so here we have a Sunday service getting ready to take place, just like we're doing this morning. 
The, the saints came together, and they, they broke bread, and they had service together. They did Lord's Supper, and they enjoyed each other's company. They had, they had a meal. Okay? They loved one another, and they came together on a Sunday, the first day of the week, to, to celebrate and to worship the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ and to practice family together. Now listen to me. There are his, many, many historic accounts uh, coming out of Rome in the first century that talk about the practices of early believers. And what most of those accounts say is that it wasn't just Sunday services where people came together as Christians, but they actually gathered every day, every single day. Now, not not only that, but they would often gather early in the morning, 4 a.m., so that they would go unnoticed because, well, first of all, persecution. But second of all, they wanted to have a good testimony in their workplace, And so they believe that to gather in someone's house at 4 a.m. to worship and to break bread, to sing and to pray, would prepare them for a day of work, and they could get to work on time, and they could be prepared in their heart to live a testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's how they gathered. So they gathered often. And here we see them having a typical, a standard Sunday service all together all day long. And these gatherings in the early church, they would have included both indentured servants and their masters together, which, listen, listen to me, in this culture was absolutely unheard of. You, you didn't share a meal. A master did not share a meal with his slave. That's not how it worked. But in the church, it bro- it, they, they began to break the norms, right? It began to tear down those wicked cultural boundaries. And now servants were eating with their masters at the same table, sharing love and affection. Now, one of the places I've seen this type of thing is actually in India, where, where the gospel begins to penetrate a community. And a lot of those Hindu traditions and cultural boundaries between men and women and the way that they engage each other, I've seen those things change, right? Is that true? Among the believers... It, it, where there's Christians, they live and they act different than the way that the Hindus do, right? And there's a love and affection that the Christians have that the Hindus often don't have for each other, right? Yeah, look at him. He's even smiling. He knows what I'm talking about. Ask Danny about it. But this is the thing, that when, when Christians love each other, they want to spend time with each other, and, and, it, and there's, there's no boundaries that will separate them from doing that. And so they would have gathered together, they would have sang, they would have worshipped, and they would have also listened to Paul preach, now, now, Paul was preparing to leave the next day, and so they took some extra, extra you know, it's like a, a celebration. They, 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 want, they want to spend as much time with Paul as possible. And so he begins to preach, and listen to what it says. There's, there's preaching there. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now, hold on a second. I know in about 15 minutes, some of you are going to be asking, when is this dude going to be done? Okay. Now, I just want to remind you that the early Christians <laughs> were prepared to listen to preaching up till midnight. Okay? So no one's going anywhere. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. We'll, we'll, we'll finish at an appropriate time. Because I love you is why. Um, key point number three. Our love will be displayed in the time that we give to one another and the time that we give to one another. Now listen, I know you can't be at church and with church people all the time. You've got a job, you've got things to do, just like the people in the early church did. right? And you've even got a mission. 
You've got a mission in mind. You've got to go meet lost people. You've got to, you've got to go out into the world, into the darkest corners of, of the earth, and you've got to go take light to those places. And you need time and energy and opportunity to do that. But listen to me. When the saints gather together, you ought not neglect that. Now, there'll be reasons. There'll be providential hindrances. There'll be things that get in the way. But listen, as much as, as is possible in our lives, we ought to, get, to, to gather and get together with the saints. And so for us as a family, that means Sundays, That means Tuesday night prayer, and sometimes people can't make it to Tuesday night prayer. I get that. No one's mad about that. But we've got Bible study, and we've got discipleship, and we ought to be faithful. We ought to be faithful when the saints come together, because those times are precious, and they're needful, and they're sharpening, and they're enlightening, and they're they're life-giving, and they illuminate us, and they prepare us to go to those dark places. And we, we ought to be thinking this way. And people will know us by the way that we gather. Just like those early historians looked at the early church and they said, well, let's see, look at how often they gather, freaking weirdos. Look at what they're doing. What, what the heck? And then they've got, they've got slaves eating with the masters. It's just vile. These vile, disgusting people. We ought to kill every single one of them, you know. The world looks at us and they say, well, look at how they gather together. It's very strange, isn't it? And let me be the first to tell you, yes, it is. <laughs> but family loves each other. And as I look around this room, there isn't anyone or any place or other people that I would rather spend time with than the people in this room. You are the best people I know. And to do life with you is a privilege. And we ought to treat each other in a way that honors that. And that means coming together and hanging out and doing the thing. I know, I know sometimes you're like, Bible study again? Okay, all right. Well, I mean, if there's a reason that you can't make it to Bible study, that's no one's mad about that. But the, but the point is that our heart towards it should it ought to be I want to be there. And if I can't be there, I can't be there. But I, I desire to be there because I desire to be with the saints. That's the right way of thinking. That's proper motives. That's an appropriate affection. Next, we see that, that people will know our love for one another. And we will be able to display our acts of love for one another by the way that we have compassion towards each other. So the next thing is our compassion so Paul's preaching until midnight, which, which has its benefits, but it also has its, its downfalls. Okay? Paul preached unto them, ready to, to depart on the morrow, and continue in speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber, apparently not enough lights, um, where they were gathered together, and there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. So Paul, I won't say that Paul put him to sleep, okay? That would be unfair. All right, but, 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 but Eutychus was probably, he could have been a servant child, right? He was young. We know that he was probably between the ages of 8 and 14. He may have worked a hard day. And here he is sitting in this window trying to catch a breeze. 
those late nights uh, when Eve and I were dating, she lived in Lawrence, and I'd go visit her, and I'd head home late at night, and I'd turn the music up really, really loud because it was like midnight, and I was exhausted, and I'm driving back to Kansas City, and I rolled the windows down. doesn't matter how cold it was because I couldn't, I couldn't stand. I mean, what happens if you fall asleep at the wheel, right? So the windows would be down, and this is Eutychus sitting in the window. He's hoping that cool breeze will keep him awake. It doesn't work out that way, though. So he falls asleep. And uh, as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. So we, here we have, we have an, unfortunate, an unfortunate incident of chance, right? No one really did anything wrong, right? It's just it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate situation. So Paul's preaching, he's preaching long, and, and there's this vulnerable moment. Or this young man who loves the Lord is there to hear the preaching of Paul. And he's sitting in this window and there's a vulnerable moment where something happens to him. And he falls to his death. And it's just a a bad circumstance, isn't it? No one can point the finger at Paul. No one can blame Eutychus. No one can blame the parents. It's just something bad happened. An innocent mistake. A bad situation in which this young man would pay dearly for. And oftentimes, this is how life works, right? In our naivety or in our ignorance or just circumstance, life catches up with us and something happens. Bad things happen. It's just a situation of unfortunate events. But listen to me. God is in unfortunate events. I think about the loss of my brother in the car accident, right? Or the illness of my sister or the loss of family members due to just situations, right, that happen. It's painful. It's unfortunate. But in those things that seem like, you know, I was watching some documentary with Eva the other day, and there's someone died of a, you know, a gunshot or something. It's one of these, you know, I'm into these crime things. We're watching one of these documentaries, and the guy's like, oh, God, why? You know, that whole thing. This is just a circumstantial situation. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong neighborhood, wrong people to surround yourself with. You know, a bullet flies and it kills somebody and you're mad at God. You're mad at God about that. It's just, it's just sometimes bad things happen, right? Now, as I was doing the sermon, I wrote the word unfortunate down two or three times before I stopped to do a, a little word study and to figure out what does, what does Eutychus' name mean? And guess what? By my, uh, to my surprise, his name actually means fortunate. I was like, whoa, God, what? <laughs> his name means fortunate because at the end of the day, even in the most unfortunate situations, if we have Christ, we are the most fortunate people that could, could ever be. Yeah. Despite our circumstances that, that many times seem unfair, If we know God, we are all way more fortunate than we deserve to be. We deserve hell, and we are fortunate that we have found Christ. And in this case of Eutychus, Eutychus was doubly fortunate in that God had given him a compassionate healer, the man Paul. Verse 10 says, 
And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread, and eaten, and taken, uh, talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed, and they brought the young man alive, and were not a, li- uh, not a little comforted. Does this remind you of another story that we've read recently? Remember Elijah? Remember the, the, the message that I preached from the Elijah series where, where the, the young boy that he's staying with, the mother and the young boy, and the young boy falls sick and dies, right? And in the story, Paul throws himself over the child three times in prayer, and the, and the child, I'm sorry, uh, Elijah throws himself on the young boy three times, and the, and the young boy comes back to life. There's a miracle that takes place. And this story reminds us of that. Now, the thing that's in common in both of these stories is that, on, on, that on, what's on display is a great compassion. Great compassion. Just like in Elijah's story, we find Paul's compassion on display with this young believer who's fallen prey to his own naivety. Now this word embrace is different than the embrace that we saw earlier on. Okay, because he, he falls down and Paul embraces him, right? It says, now the word embrace, the first time we saw it at the beginning of the chapter, it's a, it's a form of salutation. It's an embracing of salutation. It's a greeting, right? But this word embrace means to wrap up, to throw yourself around. It's an embrace of desperation. It's a different kind of of affection. Paul throws his whole body at this young man and wraps his arms around him in a display of absolute compassion for a young man that he barely even knew. And what does that teach us? Key point number four. Our love will be displayed in the compassion that we, that we have for those who suffer loss. It'll be on display in the way that we have compassion for those who suffer loss. Paul had compassion, and he hurt, and he had a sadness, and it was on display, and he wasn't afraid to show it. He, he didn't feel like he needed to act proper or apostolic in that moment. He didn't have to, to do a certain thing. He threw his body on this young man in desperate plea. And you know, when we suffer loss as a body, we ought to be there for each other in a very similar way. Some some would call it empathy. But even if you don't know how to empathize, you can simply you can you, you can certainly pour out sympathy in a situation. And you can be there and you can love and you can show affection. And you can devote yourself to that other person and you can seek to know the pain and the suffering that they have. You can have compassion and people will know us by our compassion for each other. But beyond that, check this out. Check this out. Beyond that, the young man raises from the dead. Now what does that tell us? That tells us that there's something too when believers have suffer, they suffer loss, there's something to the embrace that we have for each other. Right? Metaphorically. The compassion that we show each other. It's healing, isn't it? When we show each other love and we care for each other, we actually have the ability to nurse each other back to health. That's a true possibility. That's, that's, that's what the body of Christ does. But look, it goes beyond that. The picture is even more inspirational than that. Beyond this, I want you to see the broader picture. This young man is dead. And we know that spiritual death means eternal separation from the Lord. 
When the Bible talks about death, what it means is a separation from God that's eternal, it lasts forever. Death doesn't mean just physical death. It goes beyond that. Death is also spiritual. And what we see here is Paul picturing for us the way Christ threw his compassion upon us and brought us back to life the day that we accepted him as our Savior and our Lord and we received his forgiveness. There's a, there's a bigger picture here. And so key point number five is this. Our love will be displayed in the compassion that we have for the lost. So in other words, this love that Paul shows for this young man is the same love that Christ showed for us. And it's the same love that we ought to have for those who are dead, that are separated from the Lord, who are lost in their sin. The people that we engage every day, that we walk by on the street, that we have classes with. These are the people that we ought to have compassion for. The same way that Christ had compassion on you. With the hope. With the hope. That people would be brought to life. That they would be delivered from death. Supernaturally. By the miracle of Jesus Christ. Death, burial, and resurrection. That people, the lost people that we have compassion for. Would come to know Jesus and their lives would be changed. It causes me to consider, do we have this kind of love for the spiritually dead all around us? Do we have the kind of compassion that looks like a broken and urgent embrace? I mean, like if you could, like if the power was in you, that through an embrace, through throwing your arms around someone and showing them love, if they could find salvation, would you do it? You would be the greatest hug machine ever if you had the power to do that. But you don't. Christ does. So listen to me. You live in such a way that personifies that kind of love in every behavior, every action, and every word full of faith because you believe that there is one that can save them. And next... How else shall we show our love? How else can we act out love? Verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 11 says, When he therefore was come up again, okay, so the young man raises from the dead, they're hanging out, but Paul comes up again and they, they break bread and they eat. And listen, they talked a long while, even till the break of day. So he departed. And they brought the young man alive and and were not a little comforted. Paul was preaching and teaching long past midnight. Long past midnight. He stayed up with them all night long. And the best thing that he could give them is his intense time. The intensity of his love was so great that he was tireless in his affections. And because he knew that this might be the last time he sees these people, he stays up with them all night long, chatting and sharing a mutual love and devotion. And I wonder, I wonder if we share that same kind of intensity. And I'm not saying, look, I don't even have physically the ability to stay up all night. I mean, 10 o'clock rolls around and I literally, my body is like, it's like on the, It feels like I'm on the precipice of death. (laughs) Right? Like if I stay up 30 more minutes, it'll go beyond the threshold of just taking a nap. 
I will literally, my heart will stop and I'll die. That starts happening around 10 o'clock, okay? Yeah, if any of you have hung out with me at night, remember that Bible study when you come over to my house and it gets around 10 o'clock and I'm like, listening to you talking, I'm trying to pull a Paul. I'm like, I'll stay up all night if I have to. But then like my knees start buckling. I'm like, someone get me a monster immediately, you know? Uh, but, but, but listen, that's the kind of love that we should have for each other, and, and it's tireless, and it's intense, and it's so intense that it says, it says that if I need to, I'll stay up all night long. If I need to, I'll get in my car and I'll drive across the U.S. If I need to, I'll give up this, I'll skip class today to be there for this person. It says, it says that, that, yes, I'll do everything I can to be there for that person that's hurting or in need, or, or, or I just simply need to show them love. They're in that moment, and I need to be there for them. You know, I, like, I, like, I liken it to, to sometimes during Mission Focus, missionaries will be in town, and I like to have them over to my house, and it'll be like the one time a year that I like stay up really late, and, uh, and I'll invite people. Some of you have been over to my house when there's missionaries there, and we'll stay up really late, and we'll just talk to them, and we'll listen to them, and, and they'll stay up late, and they'll be with us, and they'll get in their car at 1 a.m. or something, and they'll leave, and they'll go home, and that's always a good time, and the reason that we do that is because we care for each other. We want to learn from each other. We want to be with each other because we love each other that way. And so there's an aspect for our love and the way that we act out our love that's an intense thing. And it allows us to make excuses to spend time together. It, it gives us excuses to spend an extra amount of time in study this week. It gives us excuses, excuses, reasons, justifications to give more, to sacrifice. Why, why couldn't I sacrifice? Why, God, you'd have to show me why I shouldn't give this resource, give this time, give this energy. You're going to have to show me why not to do it because I love these people so much that I want to. You see that kind of intensity? You see it in Paul, but do we see it in one another? Do we act that way? Do we live that way? That leads us to the next key point. Our love will be displayed in the willingness we have to give our energy. Our energy. Are you willing to give your energy? Now, we've talked about all these things, and there's more to be studied here in, in chapter 20, and we'll, we'll come back to this, and we'll talk more about the ways in which love is displayed. We see it beautifully in this, this message, this sermon that Paul's about to preach. We see it on display there, and we'll talk about this more. But, but as for today, I, I wonder, as we, 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 we studied this and we looked at all these ways in which our love should be acted out, I wonder if there's some of us today that recognize that we actually don't love each other rightly. And this isn't actually lived out, like in your own personal life. You, you don't treat the body of Christ this way. And, and even more than that, that some of you have, uh, have severs or, or, or broken aspects of your relationships. Like there's someone in the room that maybe you're frustrated with or angry with, or maybe you've done something and you know it, but you don't want to admit it, or on and on and on and on. And there's all these things that can happen in family, right? How we bring our baggage to the table in our real families. Sometimes we create that same baggage in our actual church spiritual family as well. And there might be a relationship in here that you need to get right. Something, that, something that's just not sitting right. And it makes it difficult for you to function in family life together to treat that person like a brother or a sister. And if that's the case, as we go into worship, worship team, come on, come on up. As we go into worship... I want to invite you to come, uh, to get out of your seat and to go find that person and make reconciliation with them. And reconciliation, all that word means is to make right what was wrong. 
That's all that means, to make right what was wrong. And so if there's something wrong in a relationship, this is your moment to go and to make that right, to have that conversation. Now, there's another person in the room, I think, that I ought to address. And it's the person that's been visiting here. Maybe this is your first week, or maybe you've been many weeks before. And you recognize that you're without a true church home. You're without a family. And you're a Christian, maybe. You're a Christian, and you've known known Christ as your Savior for a while. But you don't have a family that, that lives this kind of life with you. That helps you in the process of sanctification. And you recognize there's something missing, and that's what you need. Then I want you to make a decision today. That this is your family. Like, this table's real big. Right? And we're making more room every day. This is a big table. And you're invited to be a part. And what that looks like is membership. Not that we care about that. That's just a piece of paper that says that you... That this is your family. I don't know. It's like a birth certificate. No one ever looks at their birth certificate. They just know who their parents are. I don't... Right? But maybe you recognize for the very first time right now that you need family. And you need to actively be in family. And so for you, I want you to come forward. I want you to meet with one of the counselors. And they're going to show you what it looks like to go to what we call the new members class where you learn what it means to be part of this family. Again, it's not a program. It's, it's literally family. There's structure. All churches have structure. But, but we're, we're a family. And what does that mean? And so I want you to come forward. I want you to meet with somebody and work out what it means to be a member of this family. The last, last, last person, last person that's maybe in the room. You're hearing all this, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't even know the Christ that he's talking about. Like, I don't even, that affection's not in me, and I've never experienced it from anyone outside. I've never had anyone love me that way. But listen to me. What we're talking about is a feeble attempt to love the way that Jesus Christ loves. He loved in his life. He loved from the cross. He loved in the resurrection. And he loves from a heavenly throne, even right now. He loves us, and the Bible says he prepares a place for us. And he loves us that much. And even when people fail you, even when this family fails you, Christ loves you with an enduring love. It's the most righteous and it's the purest and it's the most affectionate kind of love that can exist. He loves you that way. And if you want to know that love, then I would ask that you come forward as well as we worship and as we pray and as we praise the Lord. If any of those things represent you, come and take care of it. Don't sit there. Don't not know. Don't ignore it. Deal with it. Because that's what people who love Christ and love his family do. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we do. We love you. And, and so many times we say that and we don't mean it. And for that, Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness. We're a type of people that have love on our lips all the time. I love you. I love you. I love you. All the time. And so often when we say it, we don't actually consider the words that we're saying. And so right now we want to say Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your love for us, your affection, your care, your tenderness. Lord, how you bore our wickedness. There's no greater love that a man can have than than he lays down for his friends. And you, you bore death on our behalf. You loved us so much that you laid your life down for us. And for that, we're eternally grateful. 
And we say we love you. And Lord, if our love in any way lacks pure motive or our affections are wrong, Lord, I ask that you would convict us right now as we worship to deal with that, to either come forward and meet with a counselor or to go find that person to make sure our friendship and our brotherhood is right. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.